Introduction to the Marxist Theory of Value From the Global Perspective by Torko Lawson The driving force in capitalism is accumulation. Capital invests in order to create more capital. It is no coincidence that capitalism is synonymous with growth. Capital seeks to sell as many commodities as possible at the highest price. In order to do so, capital is dependent on the market, which can impose limits on how much capital is able to sell of a certain commodity. The market largely determines capital's access to raw materials, labor power, and buyers. How much profit capital can make out of a certain commodity depends, among other factors, on the number of competitors on the market. The restrictions that markets put on sales vary from one time and place to another. All historical forms of capitalism are expressions of the pure capitalist idea, but they have each had their own specific characteristics and power relations. Actually existing capitalism is the result of economic laws and social conditions. In the mid-19th century, Karl Marx set out to describe capitalism in all its facets. His multi-volume study, Capital, was the result. Due to the complexity of the subject matter, however, Marx only got halfway through his analysis. He never properly outlined theories of the state, the world market, international trade, or imperialism, although he did analyze colonialism and England's exploitation of other nations. The first theory of the world market in the spirit of capital was formulated 100 years later by Gary Emanuel. Emanuel referred to value transfer from one country to another as unequal exchange. It is important to outline Marx's understanding of value in order to understand transnational forms of exploitation. Commodities Marx's analysis of capitalist accumulation is based on an analysis of commodity production. The accumulation of capital requires humans to believe that their needs can only be satisfied by commodities. Commodification is for capitalism what cells are for living organisms. It is the DNA that we find in all capitalist societies from a simple exchange of goods on a medieval town square to today's global market. A commodity has two forms of value, use value and exchange value. Its use value defines its ability to satisfy a physical or psychological need. Its exchange value defines what it can be traded for, two chairs for one table, etc. A commodity is produced by human labor for exchange. Whether something is a commodity does not depend on physical qualities, but on economic relationships. The ultimate test is the market. Whatever can be sold is a commodity. Having exchange value is what unites all commodities. Their production, however, is based on human labor. The exchange of commodities therefore implies concrete social relationships between producers and buyers. It is not simply an exchange of objects or things, even if it may appear so. Both use value and exchange value are reflected in labor. Use value relates to the concrete labor necessary to produce, carpeting, plumbing, etc. Use value and concrete labor are qualitative in nature and satisfy needs. Exchange value relates to abstract labor, which is quantitative in nature, measuring the time, energy, knowledge, and experience needed to produce. When a commodity receives its exchange value in comparison with other commodities, these aspects of labor become relevant. Of particular importance is the socially necessary labor time, which is the time required for the production of a commodity, 
based on the average quality and intensity of labor, as well as the technological development available for production. Simple Commodity Production What Marx calls simple commodity production belongs to the pre-capitalist era. Commodities were produced before the dawn of capitalism. Both slave and feudal societies produced commodities from markets. Early forms of commodity production were tied to individual producers, craftsmen and farmers, who owned the means of production themselves. The exploitation of others in the form of wage labor was not yet a characteristic economic feature. There was slavery and serfdom, but labor power was not a commodity. Primitive Accumulation During a long process, from the end of the 15th to the 19th century, capitalism replaced simple commodity production as the main form of production. Marx calls the period during which feudalism dissolved, while the requirements for the capitalist mode of production were created, primitive accumulation. Primitive because capitalism could not become dominant based on its own laws of accumulation. The initial capital was not created by capitalist exploitation of wage labor, but by plunder and robbery. I have described this above in connection with colonialism. But acquiring the initial capital was not the only requirement for capitalism's breakthrough. The creation of a proletariat was another. What was needed was a class of workers who were free in two senses of the word, free to sell their labor power, that is, they were not slaves or serfs, and free from property, that is, unlike craftsmen and farmers, they did not own means of production. Two general classes appeared, the bourgeoisie, owning capital and the means of production, and the proletariat, with nothing but its labor power to sell. Labor power was now turned into a commodity. A process of proletarianization was set in motion that continues to this day, particularly in the global south. Value and Price Labor power is not a regular commodity. Its price, the wage, is determined by various factors. Marx distinguished between two major ones, labor power's reproduction costs and what he called the historical and moral element. The reproduction costs of labor power relate to the costs that are necessary to keep the working class alive, fit to work, and able to have children who become new workers. In simple terms, they are the costs necessary for food, clothes, and shelter. When a worker receives a wage that covers only the bare minimum of what is necessary, it is called a subsistence wage. The historical and moral element was explained by Marx in the following way. On the one hand, the number and extent of his so-called necessary wants, as also the modes of satisfying them, are themselves the product of historical development, and depend therefore to a great extent on the degree of civilization of a country, more particularly on the condition under which, and consequently on the habits and degree of comfort in which, the class of free laborers has been formed. In contradistinction, therefore, to the case of other commodities, there enters into the determination of the value of labor power a historical and moral element. Nevertheless, in a given country at a given period, the average quantity of the means of subsistence necessary for the labor is practically known. The historical and moral element is therefore a product of class struggle. It is of great importance for the wage level in capitalism and, together with the limited international mobility of labor, helps explain the enormous differences in wages globally. The use value of labor power, its ability to create surplus value, is not affected by these differences. Why should a dock worker in Esbjerg, Denmark, create more value than an equally qualified dock worker in Shanghai, 
simply because their wage is 25 times higher. Instead, the wage is dependent on national and global class relations. It is a result of norms, rules, laws, and not least the result of trade union efforts with regard to working hours, minimum wages, overtime pay, collective bargaining, and so on. Within countries, especially imperialist ones, there is a tendency for wages to balance out. Globally, the differences remain huge. The price of labor power, the wage, is relatively stable over time, but it varies significantly from place to place. The price for other commodities varies significantly over time, but is relatively stable from place to place. The prices for copper and wheat go up and down almost daily, but they do so across the world, except labor power. The Circulation of Capital Labor power is a special commodity in other ways, too. For the capitalist, the use value of labor power consists of its producing commodities whose exchange value exceeds the costs of the raw materials and the labor power required to produce them. In order to exploit labor power in this way, capitalists must own means of production. They must invest in workshops and factories, machines, raw materials, and so on. This is called constant capital because its value remains unaffected during the process of accumulation. The labor power that the capitalist buys is called variable capital, because it is used to create value which exceeds its own. The circulation of capital is divided into the sphere of production and the sphere of circulation. In the latter, commodities are bought and sold. Both spheres are dependent on one another. There is no circulation without production, and there is no point in producing without circulation. The first phase of the circulation of capital consists of capitalists acquiring means of production and buying labor power. The second phase consists of using the means of production and the labor power purchased to produce commodities. The capitalist must be able to sell the commodities at a price that exceeds the expenses that were incurred during the first phase. The value of labor power and the value created by it must not be confused. The latter must be higher than the former. Surplus value comes only from variable capital. The raw materials used might change form. For example, leather is turned into shoes, but they don't create extra value. The third phase of the circulation of capital consists of trading commodities. In this phase, the capitalist collects the surplus value created in the production process. He must be able to sell the commodities that have been produced on the market at a price that includes both the expenses for constant and variable capital, plus the surplus value that can be used to either start the circulation of capital anew with expanded possibilities, or to consume. Figure 8 below illustrates this. Surplus Value What distinguished Marx's analysis of capitalism from those of his contemporaries was the way in which he tied exploitation to the creation of surplus value. Surplus value is the value created by the worker that exceeds the value of their own labor power. Technically, we can divide the workday into two periods, one in which the worker reproduces the value of their labor power, and another in which they create surplus value. The rate of surplus value depends on the extent of the second period. The following formula shows the relationship between the value of labor power, variable capital, and surplus value. The rate of surplus value therefore indicates the level of exploitation of labor power. Constant capital is not a relevant factor here. How much of it is used in production has no significance for the rate of surplus value. Profit Surplus value in itself is of no interest to the capitalist. The capitalist is interested in profit. Profit does not depend on surplus value, but on the production costs in general, 
or what is called the cost price. How the cost price is divided between constant capital and variable capital is of no interest to the capital either. Marx writes in the third book of Capital, in its assumed capacity of offspring of the aggregate advanced capital, surplus value takes the converted form of profit. The relation between the surplus value and the total capital used for production defines the profit rate, as illustrated in the table below. The profit rate depends both on the rate of surplus value and on the relation between constant and variable capital. A rise in surplus value brings a rise in the profit rate. The relation between constant and variable capital is called capital's organic composition. It is dependent on the relationship between labor power and the means of production. This relationship varies from industry to industry. Capital has low organic composition if variable capital makes up a big part of total capital, and high organic composition if constant capital makes up a big part of total capital. An example of an industry with a high organic composition of capital is the petrochemical industry, which relies largely on constant capital. An example of an industry with a low organic composition of capital is the textile industry, which relies largely on variable capital. The following table, considering the rate of surplus value and the turnover time, illustrates the relation between capital's organic composition and the profit rate. The higher the organic composition, the lower the profit rate. The lower the organic composition, the higher the profit rate. Table 3. Influence of Organic Composition on the Profit Rate Formation of the Average Rate of Profit As Table 3 shows, capitals of the same size but with different organic compositions can, in theory, generate very different rates of surplus value, and therefore very different profit rates. This, however, is not what happens in practice. Otherwise, capital would flock to industries with a low organic composition. Yet this is not the case. We know that the average long-term profit rates of different industries are very similar. But why? Capital always drifts towards those industries promising the highest profits. If there is increased demand for the products of a certain industry, the prices will rise, and in turn, so will the profit rate. This attracts capital formerly invested in other industries and leads to a growth of this particular industry. Often the consequence is overproduction and oversupply, falling prices, a lower profit rate, and capital moving on. Unequal profit rates between different industries cause the constant movement of capital and balance out the industry's average rates of profit. In other words, competing capitals ensure that the average, long-term profit rates of different industries are very similar. This also means that a given amount of capital will, in the long run, create similar profit no matter what industries it is invested in or how it is divided between constant and variable capital. The original value of commodities is converted into a price of production. The price of production of a commodity consists of the cost price plus the average profit in relation to the capital used, not only consumed, in its production. This can be summarized in the following formula. Price of production equals cost price plus parentheses, totally used capital times the average rate of profit. The price of production must not be confused with the market price, which it is only coincidentally equal to. The market price is the price a commodity is actually sold for on the market. Market prices are adjusted by supply and demand. Therefore, the price of production of a particular commodity is not the same as its value. But the combined price of production of all commodities is the same as the combined value of all commodities. 
Also, combined profits are the same as the combined surplus value created in production. The goal for each commodity is to reach a market price that consists of its production cost plus the average rate of profit. This allows production, and therefore the accumulation of capital, to continue. Let us see how the average rate of profit impacts the numbers in the table above. If we put total capital at 100 and the rate of surplus value consistently at 100%, and if we assume that the total capital will circulate, then the new numbers indicate the average rate of profit. As Table 4 indicates, the amount of labor power required in different industries, and therefore the organic composition of capitals, as well as surplus value, differ widely. But surplus values can move from one industry to another. When profits are distributed, surplus value is transferred from industries with a low organic composition to industries with a high organic composition. As stated above, this is of no relevance for capitalists, but for a Marxist analysis of capitalism, it is important to account for this transfer. Some economists have called this transfer unequal exchange, but this must not be confused with Emmanuel's use of the term. To speak of unequal exchange in this context can be misleading, because there is no equal exchange in capitalism. The value transfer described above is inherent in the logic of capital. The fact that the profit rate is distributed among all industries so that capitalists can make profits in each of them is a key aspect of capitalist production. It allows capitalists to compete on the market and to strengthen the productive forces. If commodities were priced according to their value, instead of according to the price of production, investments in mechanization would come to a halt. Capitalists would only invest in labor-intensive industries with much variable capital and a low organic composition. The pharmaceutical industry would disappear, and woodcutting would prosper. In a developed capitalist country, labor is mobile enough to guarantee that the rate of surplus value will be similar across different industries. Market prices of commodities depend on the price of production, not their value or cost price. But things look different globally. The world market. There is insufficient mobility of labor for the rate of surplus value to be balanced globally. The opposite is the case. At the same time, the mobility of capital, especially since the end of World War II and the era of decolonization, is sufficient for the prices of production to balance out globally. The key factors for price formation in the world market are unequal wages and therefore an enormous difference in the rate of surplus value between imperialist and exploited countries, as well as comparable profit rates worldwide. Unequal exchange in international trade let us see what this means from Marx's theory of the formation of prices of production using tables V1 and V2. We have two countries with identical rates of surplus value, identical profit rates, and identical organic composition of industries. Unequal organic composition can therefore not be the cause of a possible value transfer. Value and price of production are the same. Capital also circulates in the same rate in both countries. In table V1, the rate of surplus value and the profit rate are equal. Both countries are at the same level of development. In table V2, however, wages in country A have risen by 50%, which leads to less exploitation and less surplus value. This has consequences for the exchange of commodities between the two countries. The labor value used is still the same, as is the value of production, but the price of labor power has changed. This changes the rate of surplus value in country A, as well as the prices of production. Were commodities with a value of 300 points each to be exchanged between the two countries, the wage difference of 50%, which 
which compared with actual differences in wages is very modest, leads to an equal exchange. Instead of a ratio of 300 to 300, we have 333 and one-third to 266 and two-thirds. Country B loses 33 and one-third value points, while country A gains them. The exchange puts country A ahead of country B by 66 and two-thirds value points. The rise in wages by 50% in country A means that the profit rate falls from 50% to 33 and one-third percent. This is the way in which value is transferred from low-wage countries to high-wage countries. Unequal exchange in global chains of production. Argiri Emanuel formulated his theory of unequal exchange in the context of critiquing David Ricardo's classical liberal theory of foreign trade. In short, Ricardo suggested that if all countries produced what was best and cheapest, and then exchanged goods freely, we would all benefit. But Ricardo's theory is largely irrelevant today, and a modern understanding of unequal exchange requires different reference points. Given the global chains of production, it is probably most useful to formulate a theory of unequal exchange in the context of neoliberal price formation. According to liberal economic theory, the price of a commodity is determined by supply and demand. If the market price does not cover the production cost plus the average rate of profit, the commodity will no longer be produced. If the market still demands it, however, its price will rise and producing it will once again become profitable. In a global chain of production, starting with design and planning in the global north, passing through manufacturing in the global south, and ending with branding, marketing, and sale in the north, the production cost of a commodity takes on the form of a happy smiley face. The labor in the north, in the beginning and at the end, adds much to the price, the labor in the south little. If the same process is analyzed from a Marxist perspective, however, the focus will be on value production, not price production which means that the smiley face will be sad. Little contribution in the north, much contribution in the south. The explanation for the difference between price and value is the difference in how we measure labor power. The price curve focuses on the price of labor power, the wage. The value curve focuses on labor itself, how long it takes, how well it is done, etc. Exploitation. It is human labor that creates value, and it is surplus labor that creates surplus value. While it is the market that distributes the value created by human labor between industries and countries, among capitalists, the average rate of profit balances out. Value is transferred from industries with low organic composition to industries with high organic composition. Finance and trade capital can acquire value without being involved in production at all. Between capitalists and workers, the distribution of value follows a simple principle. Profit for the capitalists, wages for the workers. Between countries, the distribution depends on the relationship between the wage and the market price of commodities. Relatively high wages in the global north can buy relatively cheap commodities, containing relatively high value from the global south. We can neither touch nor see value and surplus value. We can only touch and see the commodities that have value. But the effects of surplus value bring well-being to some and poverty to others. Value and surplus value are based on social relationships. Surplus value can be measured in labor time, but is not a quality physically embedded in commodities. As Karl Marx puts it, so far no chemist has ever discovered exchange value either in a pearl or a diamond. Value is moved, distributed, and allocated as a consequence of competition and class struggle. 
Capitalist exploitation is not exclusively tied to production. In the, Marxist, in the Marxist theory of value, exchange is of central importance. One cannot explain the relationship between use value and exchange value without analyzing exchange and social relationships entails, and the social relationships entails. Without exchange, human labor would not appear as the basis of value. Here, labor is the only possible measuring stock. A theory of value entails the theory of price formation. The transformation of value into price occurs on the market, in other words, in exchange. If we look at value only in the realm of production, we turn value into an essence that flows from the minds and bodies of workers into the commodities they produce. But as we have seen, value is the result of social relationships. Exploitation occurs throughout the entire circulation of capital, that is, during the production of commodities as much as during their exchange. Surplus value is created in production, but it is acquired and distributed in exchange. The fact that people are involved in production doesn't necessarily mean that they are exploited or that they are exploiting others. Wage labor is a necessary precondition for capitalist exploitation, but not a sufficient one. Exploitation depends on the concrete relationship between labor, wage, and surplus labor, surplus value. If due to their wage, people can acquire more value than they have created, then they are not exploited, but they exploit. Already in 1857, Marx discussed in Grundrisse that workers can draw an advantage from the work of other workers. This happens when the goods some workers produce are sold for less than their value and consumed by other workers who can afford them because of the wages they are paid. He wrote, As regards the other workers, the case is entirely the same. They gain from the depreciated commodity only in relation, one, as they consume it, two, relative to the size of their wage, which is determined by necessary labor. Today, the wages of some workers are high enough to acquire value that other workers have created. Whether someone earns $5 million a year, for example, a CEO, or $60,000 a year, for example, a skilled worker, changes the extent of the value transfer, but not its nature. Exploitation between countries. In its most basic form, exploitation means the appropriation of someone else's labor. An individual can exploit another individual in the same way that, that a country can exploit another country. The products of human labor are goods and services. To appropriate human labor therefore means to appropriate the goods and services it produces. The exploitation of one country by another depends on inequality in the exchange of goods and services. This can happen in the form of trade balance deficits, when imperialist countries import more goods than they export, or through price formation. We have to get over this simplistic idea that the market is only a place where producers meet with consumers. Today, a significant part of all market transactions occur between producers and other producers in global chains of production. Price formation in this market of suppliers is hugely affected by buyers acquiring a part of the profit that the seller has made in earlier transactions. It is not the capitalists running the clothing factories in Bangladesh who reap the super profits made in the global textile industry, but the likes of H&M and their customers. In some cases, buyers and sellers along a global chain of production belong to the same company, for example, in the automobile industry, in which case they are able to manipulate prices for tax benefits. Global chains of production are nothing new. They have existed throughout capitalism's history. 
If necessary, goods were transported across state borders. It made no difference whether they were enslaved people, cotton, or metals. With the industrialization of the global south, however, global chains of production have become the norm. The chain's paths are far from random. Their starting points may vary, but practically all of them end in the US, Western Europe, or Japan. This has brought a growing polarization between the periphery and the center of the capitalist world system, facilitated by unequal exchange. It is remarkable how capitalism, as a historical system, has been able to mask unequal exchange. We can only understand this if we look at the structure of the capitalist system, or, more specifically, at the apparent separation between the economy, the global division of labor, the process of production, markets, and so on, and politics, the sovereign, militarized state as the key unit. The polarization of the world and the concentration of capital at the system center created both the financial possibility and the political motivation to establish strong state apparatuses in the global north, one of their main tasks being to keep the state apparatuses in the global south weak. As a result, the rich countries of the global north can use both market forces and political power, including violence, to enforce the global division of labor they profit from, ensuring that the poor countries occupy the weakest positions in the global chains of production. In short, the enormous differences between the countries of the global north and the countries of the global south have been created throughout capitalism's history by a combination of economic and political means. When I say that this process has been masked, it is because it is apparently accepted that global prices and wages are simply the results of market forces. But an enormous political apparatus stands behind every transaction that perpetuates unequal exchange. When necessary, unequal exchange is ensured by military intervention. Capitalism has established a global economy, but no global state. Instead, it has produced a hierarchy of more or less sovereign states. This hierarchy impacts the global economy and its markets, which are always in flux. The economy doesn't follow natural laws. The laws of the market are but the result of national as well as global political struggles, and they can be changed through such struggles.